the magic happens at the end. Because right in, in a, when you first meet in a play, most of the time you don't know everybody. You know, the actors, director, lighting design, costume. You come together, you form this family. And of course, if you come from a dysfunctional backstabbing family, <laughs> you're like, hmm, does this person really get my play? <laughs> Welcome to episode five of Find Your Light, the podcast that helps women in theater take center stage in lives they love. I am your host, freshly back from vacation, Emily Stamets. Now, I just spent a few days on an island and I took maybe like three pictures. So to explain why, let me rewind about a week before that. Lucy Wang, who is the interview you're about to hear today, she and I connected via another playwright, Elizabeth Wong, and we connected over Twitter. We've been, you know, tweeting back and forth a little bit. Now, the day after I did her interview, which was amazing and that you're going to hear in just a little bit, the day right after that, I woke up pretty much in a funk. I told Twitter, I spent kind of the morning like being really unproductive and just feeling sort of like, uh, and I finally was like, all right, I need to like deal with this, get my vibe back up, do something with my day. So I hopped on Twitter and I told Twitter that I was taking a break. I was going to sit in the sun on a rock with my journal, maybe have a good cry. Now, Lucy is awesome, and she emailed me after she saw that tweet. She reached out because she's super sweet and caring like that. Um, and she just said that she hoped I was feeling better, that if there was anything different that I needed from her interview, she was happy to provide it. And I was like, oh my gosh, Lucy, it's totally not you. Your interview was fantastic. I just haven't been following my own morning routine. I haven't been doing the basics that keep me high vibe because I've been so excited about like this podcast and other things that are happening. Um, and I've just sort of let my normal routines go to the wayside. So I was like, I just needed a day off of social media. I needed to sit in the sun. I feel much better now. But the way that she reached out was so sweet. And I think it really illustrates the power of social media, that it keeps us connected in really real ways to real people. However, Social media also has some huge drawbacks. There's a ton of research on this, uh, but my copious experience with social media, which has included for uh, since 2013, I think, running accounts on every single platform for multiple branches of my business, my experience is this. When I consume more than my reasonable limit, and yes, I'm using the word consume very intentionally here. When I consume more than a reasonable limit of social media, it becomes the lens through which I experience my life. It's kind of like, you know, in the old school follow spots with the levers that you kind of pop down to change the gel color. It's like social media is one of those gel colors and you just slam it down over your life and you're not ever able to see clearly. For me, right, this is my experience. I can't see clearly when the social media is the lens. I will literally find myself thinking in, you know, being somewhere cool or having some experience and thinking, how can I share about this? What's the story here? What's helpful for other people in this? What's the best picture to share about this? Instead of, you know, actually living in that moment. And for me, that's an incredibly detrimental effect that leads to a general sense of dis-ease and disconnection from my life. It makes me listless, distracted, and unfocused. To be a little hippy-dippy about it, it lowers my vibe. 
Here's why this applies to you and why I'm talking about it on this podcast. Overconsuming social media can take the place of creating. It's like keeping the phone line between you and your muse busy all the time. She'll never be able to get through to you with her best ideas if you're scrolling Facebook or Instagram or watching, you know, Instagram stories for hours. If your muse can't get through, that's going to leave you listless, unfocused, drained, low vibe, unfulfilled. What if instead of spending two hours mindlessly scrolling, you filled the cracks in your day with reading, sketching, texting a good friend, stream of consciousness journaling, choosing a song to dance to before bed, stretching, watching the clouds, or just, you know, being bored. How much more creative could you be? How much more new stuff could you bring into the world if you weren't thoughtlessly consuming pictures of other people's dogs, breakfasts, or their toes in the sand? So that's why I took only three pictures on my vacation because I wanted to be there, not be sharing about being there. Now, on an intentional social media use scale of one to 10, where one is a 12-year-old with her first smartphone and 10 is a person with no social media accounts whatsoever, shout out to those people, I'm like a seven or eight, but I still slip, especially when I get excited about something, like I did with the launch of this podcast. I start to bend my own rules, which is a slope as slippery as a whale's behind, which I don't actually know if a whale's behind is slippery. So if you know, if there's like a marine biologist who's listening right now, please let me know if a whale has a slippery behind, because that would be fun to know. I imagine like the, the top of the tail portion. Anyway, email me. Thanks in advance. Okay, so because I am getting myself back on track with my levels of social media consumption, I thought it might be helpful to share my favorite tips with you in the hopes that you're able to also scale back a little bit if it's a problem for you and potentially be more creative and fulfilled because my world gets better when you create more. Okay, so here are my top three strategies that are really simple. Number one, and this might be the hardest and you're gonna yell at me and that's totally okay because I can't even hear you. Delete social media apps from your phone. You can still get on Facebook. You can still get on Twitter. You can even still get on Instagram from a computer. Now, what this does for me is it means that if I want to go on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, I have to walk my ass into my office, open my laptop, log in. So it's like creating a bigger barrier so I don't just find myself mindlessly scrolling. I remember one time I was sitting down to watch I think Westworld or something, a show that like has beautiful production design that I really wanted to pay attention to. And in the middle of the show, I realized that I, I was on my phone and I don't even remember picking up my phone. I did not decide to pick up my phone and scroll Facebook. It just happened. It was so mindless. I think that was the first day that I deleted Facebook from my phone. And I haven't had Facebook on my phone for I mean, it's probably been a year at this point and I still exist, right? I'm still here. I'm still findable on Facebook. My friends still know that I'm alive. Everything's really still okay. And I have bought back hours of my day just by not having it on my phone. Now, in this, Instagram is a total asshole. You have to have, <laughs> you have, to have Instagram on your phone to be able to snap a picture and share it or to be able to do a story, 
But if all you want to do is share single pictures at a time, then you can use a second party poster. I like Buffer. They have a free version where you can share a picture and what you have to say about it. You can add hashtags. You can do all the things. And then you don't have to like actually have Instagram on your phone, but you can still go in on your computer and comment and share and talk to other people through your Instagram account. Okay, but it means that it's not on your phone. It's less accessible. You have to be more intentional about using it. The other benefit that I really like about using second party posters or schedulers is that it gives me the advantage of time spacing. Because the thing about social media sharing, not just the consuming part, but the sharing side, is that when you share a picture, What our brain, okay, so our brain, like our lizard brain, doesn't really know the difference between something that you've posted online and something that you would have done in real life. So in real life, if you show a friend a picture or you tell a friend you're feeling sad today or, you know, you're like, hey guys, here's my breakfast, in real life, you would get instantaneous feedback about that share. But on social media, someone might see your breakfast at like 3 p.m. So But our brain doesn't know that. Our brain is still waiting for the immediate feedback. So you may have experienced this where you post something that you're like, oh man, this picture was so cool. This post was so awesome. Or like, I'm super great. Um, And then your, your brain for the next few hours is still preoccupied with wondering how people are going to respond. Is anyone going to respond to, this is, it's in psychology, it's called a bid. Is anyone going to respond to my bid? Is anyone going to tell me my breakfast looks awesome? Is anyone going to like cheer me on? Is anyone going to try to make me feel better? So what I like about using a scheduler for social media is that it kind of removes that expectation of immediacy. I can post something, but I know that it's not going out until a few hours from now. So my brain is able to relax and not wait for those immediate results. So you gain back brain space and energy by using a poster. That was really just sort of like three strategies in one. But here's strategy number two, which is one of my favorites. Turn your phone. This is especially if you keep apps, The if you ignore my tip number one and keep the apps on your phone, try turning your phone to colorblind mode. It'll go to black and white. And it's usually in the accessibility functions, the same place where you can enlarge the text um, or do like, you know, uh, text to speech functions. Put it on colorblind mode. It'll put it in black and white. And what this does psychologically is it makes your phone much less interesting. (laughs) It makes it much less addicting. I found just my personal anecdote. There's no research behind this. This is just what happened to me. When I put my phone into colorblind mode for the first time, I cut my scrolling time in about half. Whereas it used to be really easy to spend like a half hour scrolling um, with no results and, you know, for no particular reason, when it was in colorblind mode and my, all the pictures were coming through in black and white, um, I would only spend like maybe 10 minutes scrolling. It just gets less interesting because our brains don't respond to black and white the same way that they respond to color. Okay. So that again is like tapping into our lizard brain. Okay. Tip number three is schedule a complete social media Sabbath for yourself. I have not been doing this intentionally lately. I usually, I really like to take Sundays off um, because Sunday is like the day that my spouse also doesn't work and my mother-in-law is here. And so I just like to have Sunday as like a family day. Um, But I haven't been doing that lately. I've been working through Sundays. I've been like checking in on Twitter on Sundays, those sorts of things. Um, Plan a Sabbath for yourself. Plan it regularly. It doesn't have to be weekly. It could be once a month. It could be every two weeks. But 
have a day where you intentionally say, I'm not going to be on social media. This is a great day to delete the apps from your phone. I promise they're really easy to reinstall the next day when you're done with your Sabbath. (laughs) Um, But just detox from it. Get it off of your phone. Make it Make it something that has to be more intentional if you want to do it. But also just, I find it really helpful to remind myself that life exists even if I'm not sharing about it, right? Like my life is wonderful and I do cool things. And that is a completely separate truth from sharing it with other people or from seeing what other people are sharing. So those are my strategies. Those help me keep, those help to keep me really high vibe and feeling good and Um, Just making sure that I'm living my life for me and being really present in my life uh, without that lens of social media and always thinking, how can I share this? I hope that's helpful for you. If it is, let me know. If you have other tips to share, share on our Facebook, (laughs) share on our social media accounts, uh, the Facebook page, the Twitter, the Instagram, or you can email me anytime. So just let me know. All right. Now the, the promised interview for you, um, Lucy Wang is amazing. She is a writer, editor, she's a journalist, she's a social media director, she's a ghostwriter, she's a playwriter. She's, she worked in Wall Street for a while. Um, on the playwriting side of things, she has won the Kennedy Center Award, the James Thurber Fellowship. Like she has done incredible things. And I think it's really cool that she didn't actually start playwriting until further into her adulthood. So without any further ado, Here is my conversation with the incredible Lucy Wang. Awesome. Okay. Well, yeah. Oh my gosh. I'm so excited to talk with you today. Um, Thank you for taking the time out of your life to share your time and energy with us. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Emily. I'm very excited to meet you. And I I love your energy and I love your mission, your mission to spotlight women and to help inspire youth in theater. I think it's awesome. Ah, thank you. Yeah, it's all good. It's all good stuff. Why don't you give us a, sort of a, a description of your journey from the moment when you first got into theater to where you are today? Okay. Um, I used to go to, um, I, I didn't grow up in an artsy family. My parents were immigrants and art was kind of considered superfluous, if you know what I mean. It was just like, get straight A's, be a doctor. I always joke around. I had three career options when I was growing up. Doctor, physician, MD. Anything else? <laughs> Big, fat loser. And my parents always used to say, we did not come to America for you to be a starving artist. So, so my journey, like many immigrants, um, was kind of delayed because I always had to struggle to make ends meet. And then you, you know, then you have to struggle to be heard and seen and taken seriously. Um, but I found when I finally made some money to have disposable income, I would spend all my time at the theater. So I'd have this job trading mortgage-backed securities on Wall Street, and I'd be so stressed. And, you know, I had two choices, become an alcoholic or become an artoholic. And I became an artoholic. <laughs> so I went better to- choice. <laughs> In the long run, it was a better choice. Um, so I found myself at the theater, and I just would forget about my stress. And I loved it. Um, Theater was magic for me. It, it was a night to like pretend you're in somebody else's shoes, l- see another life that is possible. Of course, not all theater was um, uplifting. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, sometimes it's edgy and gritty and you're like, ooh, and then you'd be grateful. Oh my God, I thought my job was shitty. <laughs> but God, I would hate to be that, <laughs> that person. <laughs> I can handle the stress tomorrow. <laughs> and, um, 
so that's what happened. And then after, um, after Wall Street, I worked for Mayor Dinkins in his administration. I was deputy chief of staff. So wow, I, I got to meet all these people like Bill Clinton, Hillary, Nelson Mandela, because, you know, New York City, everybody comes through New York City. It's not like they came through Akron, Ohio, where I grew up, but they came through New York and I got to shake hands and uh, Robert Reich, Leon Panetta. And after Dinkins lost to Giuliani, I was out of a job. And we, at that time, you're out of a job December 31st, like 1993. So, you know, December and January are big holiday spending months and it's easy to get depressed. So I started writing and I joined a writing group. And this writing group said to me after a couple of short stories, they're like, Lucy, this is terrific dialogue. You know, this should really be a play. And I said, really? <laughs> and, you know, at that time I was shocked. But now when I look back in retrospect, because hindsight is twenty twenty or better, I was like, oh my God, all that time that I went to the theater, that I was getting my MFA. <laughs> it's like, you know, because I saw all sorts of things, right? And um, so I must have learned just organically. And I, one of those plays, uh, one of the short stories was Number One Son. It became like the finalist at the New Dramatist L. Weisberger Award. And another one became like a finalist for the Jane Chambers and was done at Mark Taper in LA. And the third one won me the Kennedy Center Award. So I thought, oh my God, good things come in threes, right? And, <laughs> and I don't know if, um, if women do this more or what, but I saw this as a big sign, like you should be a playwright. <laughs> well, oh my God. The fact that you were like, well, I guess I got done at the Kennedy Center and the taper. So maybe I should be a playwright. Like, that's so funny to me that you like, it wasn't until like, after oh, oh, oh. And the third one was I got a two page profile in the New York times. Oh, geez. Right. So, like, so, these things that are like the pinnacle of like, right. You know, right. So all career. the news that's fit to print and I'm, I'm on the, I'm two pages, two photographs. And what's so funny is my, um, I didn't want them come to my little tiny cramped apartment in New York City. So my mother-in-law at that time, she's belonged to the pen club. So we go to the pen club for my interview and all these people think I'm really wealthy. All of a sudden, no, it's like, and I'm like, no, I'm a playwright. I just borrowed the pen club. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but they, uh, I know, right? When you, I would love to live in the pen club if in case you're listening. <laughs> that's I know, right? You're like, please, someone get me membership. Um, that's amazing. So, so you didn't really come. I mean, you you started in. I'm going to say you started in theater as a patron, um, right. but you didn't start uh, as a theater artist until well into your adulthood. Correct. I, I, yeah, I had a couple careers. I was a bond trader. I have an MBA instead of MFA, and so like a lot of times when I teach, I get stuck in adjunct health. Because they're like, you don't have the right terminal degree. And it really kills me because my students will tell you, I'm a fabulous mentor. I help them get results. One of them says, I do not teach writing. I teach success. <laughs> oh, dang, girl. I like that a lot. That's amazing. Yeah, I, you know, and I love, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, you don't know you first. I, I, I love teaching because I think what attracts some of the, many of the students to me is like um, resilience and the fact that if you really work hard and you have the drive and the passion to master your craft, I really feel you can make it. And I'm, because I'm kind of embody that spirit, right? Like, all right. I had nothing. I never went to the theater. I had nobody. My father beat me. My mother left me. And if I can do it, maybe I can help you find your light. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. I'm so excited. So give us a snapshot of what you're doing today. 
okay, because an artist <laughs> doesn't get much support in America, I juggle. Like many people, I've learned to juggle. I mentor both privately and through eScripts. And I, um, pre- I won a silver award for Beth Healthcare Journalism. So sometimes I freelance. And I'm working on a screenplay, a financial thriller uh, starring a woman uh, in Jeopardy. And it has this Me Too stuff to it as well. I'm working on a memoir because I've been convinced through some of my friends when I did my one woman show, Chinese Girls Don't Swear, or It Ain't Easy Being Chinesey, that, that my story could inspire and empower a lot of young women as well as young men who feel like, you know, the odds are totally against them. And a memoir would remind them that odds are not prophecy, you know, mm-hmm. you can, right? And sometimes it's hard to believe. I mean, sometimes it's hard to believe that because believe me, there have been days where I'm surprised I'm still standing. And um, so I'm working on a memoir, I'm working on a screenplay, and I'm working on some new plays. And I've got some monologues coming up um, in Madison, Wisconsin for the Two Steps Forward. And um, I'm a finalist. My cannabis play is a finalist in Durango, California. And um, I'm going to Jurassic soon for uh, my artistic residency. So I think the other reason I juggle a lot is, as my husband likes to remind me, if you have a 300 average in baseball, that means you're missing seven out of 10 times and you're considered a success. <laughs> so a 300 average is good. <laughs> so I'm trying to keep keep on doing all these things because you never know. Yeah. Right. And I, like yesterday, I was just contacted by someone who wants to use one of my plays for fundraiser for playwrights for pets to benefit pets. And you and I both have pets. Of course, I, of course, I'm going to say yes. <laughs> yes. All right. Don't pay me. Playwrights for pets. I love that. <laughs> I know. One of the best things about conducting these interviews is I find out about all these programs and things that I've never heard of and like events that are coming up and all these things. And I'm like, that sounds amazing. So I'm glad I get to know about it. Um, Cool. Whoa. I had a thought in my brain. Where did it go? So question for you. um, Like, what does your daily schedule look like? It may be, maybe it's like all over the place, but how do you make sure that you have time to write and that you stay committed to your writing in the midst of all of the other stuff you have going on? That is a very good question. I used to try to write in the morning all the time, but I actually found that sometimes when you work at home and because I used to go into the workforce, I like getting out of the house early and coming back to it. It's sort of like, oh, that's my commute. (laughs) And and I also found like some of the errands I do, they take less time in the morning. So if I go, let's say I have to go to the garden and water or I have to go to the grocery store or... Um, I'll do that, and then I'll come back and write. Mm-hmm. And right now, it's very disruptive because I have neighbors, um, construction, and they've been uh, tearing down this house and renovating since last September. So sometimes it's actually based on them. Like, oh, if it's quiet, I'm going to write now. And then when the hammering, <laughs> then I leave. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I haven't migrated. It's time to leave. Yeah. That um, but sense. so I, I do not have a regular time. Okay. I, I. Uh, I, instead, I try to mark like, okay, I've got to find an hour today to write. And sometimes that hour is um, playing the piano or taking a walk because a lot of writing is thinking. And that's why the writing goes so fast is when you think about it ahead of time. Like I, I do a lot of my thinking at the gym and I hate the gym, but that's why I probably go. <laughs> I also test my jokes out at the gym because these people are not 
my friends and they're not going to laugh because they like me. They're going to laugh if something's funny. <laughs> That's true. That's true. <laughs> so I found the gym is a good place to think Yeah, and test material. That's fantastic. Um, so, and I, I like that you're like, that you're using that thinking time and counting it as writing time too. Cause there's, there are writers, um, I follow a lot of writers on Twitter. Um, cause I read a lot. Um, but a lot of them are like, they have like a word count that they try to hit every day or a page count. Um, but it's true. I find that for me also as, and you know, I, I write small things. I write like emails and like social media stuff and, you know, kind of like shorter form stuff. But I find that sometimes if I give myself a day or two to think through what it is that I'm trying to say, that that is just as important as if I sit down uh, at the keyboard or, you know, at a pad of paper. Yeah. Everybody has a different um, process, but I found, especially as I became a better writer, I felt that it's not word count as I prefer word quality or a great, cause this is what I tell my students, especially during Nanimo when they're trying to make, you know, 20,000 words a day or 80,000 a month. I said, and Philip Roth even said this, uh, he said, sometimes you write a hundred pages, you keep three. And, and so some people need to do that. And sometimes I feel like in the beginning I used to overwrite and now I probably underwrite, but that's just, that's just my process. It's like, um, but, you know, but the other day I took out my young adult novel and I cut 8,000 words in a week. So, you know, sometimes oh my God. I know I was like, <laughs> I could not believe how exhausted I was after that. I was like, oh my God, this is, this is like lifting weights. Yeah. That's how I feel cutting this podcast too. When I'm editing just the conversations, it's like, it's harder work than anything that I do. Yes. I, I finish one and I'm like, that's it. I'm done for the day. I can do nothing else. Like my brain. That's is right. Is it, you're yeah. exhausted, right? Yeah. Cause the cutting is like the. The, like really tricky. Right. So during that week when it's cutting 8,000 words, I, d- I didn't really write because yeah. yeah, that is the writing, right? Yeah. Editing is writing. Revising is writing. Yeah. Um, that's awesome. And for people who aren't familiar, Nano, NanoMo or NanoRimo is National Novel Writing Month, which is in November, right? Yes. Yeah. And it's a... <laughs> right. And it's the worst program. time. It's Thanksgiving. You got to make a turkey and write 8,000 words. Know, Come on. Weird month to have it. Like right as the holidays are kicking up. It's a little nuts. What would be a better time? Maybe March would be a better time. (laughs) Or July July because it's too hot to go outside. Oh, there you go. You got to stay inside in the air conditioning. (laughs) All right, Lucy, tell us a vivid memory that you have of the theater. Okay. Because my my vivid memory, my first real big impression of theater was a chorus line because my father right? He is very, very conservative, traditional. And I didn't really know much about it, except it was this big hit by Marvin Hamlet. And um, I insisted we go. And of course, the number comes on, dance, oh, um, dance 10 looks, to, to, right? Yep. And um, it talks about tits and ass. Oh my God, my father hated it. He hated me for suggesting it. And he told me never again would we ever go to the theater. And, and, um, and I remember thinking, but it was good too, because it made me realize if I ever wanted to go in this profession, how hard it is. Cause I changed it to dance 10 looks too Chinese. <laughs> and that's what I would remind myself every time I, cause I was a big reader. That was one thing my father loved to do. He wasn't a reader. So if you said I'm reading a book, he was like, he left you alone. And, um, so dance 10 looks too Chinese. Every time I thought <laughs> I want to be a writer, it's like, I reminded myself that. Okay. That is, that is pretty good. And I bet you could fill that in with like 
any ethnicity that's not white, right? Like looks to anything basically. Um, Um, Yeah. You can even change it to looks to female dance 10 looks to female. Yeah. Or looks to uh, ethnic, uh, non-traditional female, whatever that means. Yeah. Anyway. um, So funny song, funny story about that song in particular is I got uh, my husband, I got a new car and it has like a built-in like radio like stitcher slacker radio one of those yeah. things where you just say like um you know play a channel based on this artist or based on whatever and i was like oh this will be fun play broadway radio and oh. that song was the first song that played wow i was like that's a, a that's a big choice um but then i had it and i had that song in my head for weeks like weeks it would just pop back up into my head all of a sudden so i walked around my house and like the world just singing like tits and ass <laughs> like all the time <laughs> like would you stop singing that oh <laughs> no just can you imagine if uh mike huckabee do you think mike huckabee likes that song what you see chorus line have i seen it yeah yes yeah i saw it at, uh in orange county at the seeker strom at the Seekerstrom. what was your first musical oh that's a good question um the first one, I think the first one that I saw, the first one that I can remember is our local high school came to my elementary school and did an excerpt of Annie Get Your Gun. Ah. I think they also did a Peter Pan. Um, but then my first like full musical I ever saw was one that I did. I was follow spot operator for Guys and Dolls my freshman year in high school. Well, that's good. Well, if you're accounting school, I did try out for... Little Abner and my drama teacher at that time told me there are no Asian, there are no Chinese people in Dog Patch. But no. and he told me I could be a flower pot. <laughs> but no, no he did not. yes, he did. Oh, and, uh, so I think uh, that crushed me. And um, later someone told me I should go back and say, We bought Dog Patch. <laughs> Because, you know, like, oh my God. I can't imagine saying that to anyone, much less uh, like a young person, a young adult. Uh, that makes oh, me so mad. I, know. Um, I was furious. I was, I was crushed. Yeah, more than course, furious. Of course. Um, and it's ridiculous too, especially in educational theater. Like what, what does that even make sense? I'm really sorry that happened to you. Cause I know I think that's I, why I, I think that's why I started writing for youth theater because I realized how impressionable you are then and how, you know, inclusive theater should be yeah. even at an early age and how maybe, and it is a big challenge. Talk about, you know, how you said challenges in theater today is writing to make, to actually encourage non-traditional casting. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I saw that you have some plays available at Youth Plays, which is I a do. fantastic resource for educators. Correct. Um, you know, plays written for young people that aren't just like gross skits or like girls talking about boys. That's is, right. Yeah. Um, so they're, they're good. That's a really, really good publisher. I like them a lot. Um, what is the most important lesson that you have learned in the theater? I think the lesson since I grew up in a really uh, impoverished background is learning how to trust people and to listen. And what I mean by trust is trust in the collaboration process that the magic happens at the end. Because right in, in a, when you first meet in a play, most of the time you don't know everybody. You know, the actors, director, lighting, design, costume. You come together, you form this family. And of course, if you come from a dysfunctional backstabbing family, 
<laughs> so you're like, hmm, does this person really get my play? Or, um, or do they just want their costume to shine or their lighting? I mean, are we a family? And um, so I think that the lessons I've learned in theater are empathy, uh, not just, you know how they say walk in somebody else's shoes. I, I like to say walk with someone's, in someone else's heart. You know, put your heart in somebody else. And then um, just trusting the process that the magic happens. You know, like the first day of rehearsal, if the playwright is invited, is usually torture. You hear these people mangling these words. And they're like, should theater be? And then you're like, ah! (laughs) (laughs) But you can't do that. You're like, they'll get there. uh, And when they go, what does this mean? (laughs) Like I spent three weeks on that line. <laughs> I have to imagine as a writer also that walking with someone else's heart is something you have to do all the time. Yes. Get inside your characters and find who they are and what they're doing, right? Yes, it is. I think that's probably one of the best things about writing. I mean, why I do it, even though sometimes the results aren't monetary or like, you know, as, as, as handsomely, I'm not as handsomely rewarded as I would like to be. I think that's, every day is wonder and delight. And I think, especially in this world now where we've got partisan of the politics, we're so polarized. It's just nice to know you can find some wonder and delight somewhere in this world. Yeah. Yep. What's a challenge that you're facing right now? I think one of the challenges is to try to write something different. Um, I think that I learned once from a couple of people who are advisors, they said playwrights and writers should have a brand, right? Like Stephen King has a brand. He's horror. And John Grisham and, and Scott Turow have a brand, the legal thriller. And so sometimes you're tempted to maybe write about the same theme or similar themes constantly. And you know that that actually might help you. But what is a challenge is if you're interested in other things, then maybe, you know, like youth plays, memoir, then maybe people, you fear that they think you're scattered, but you're really not. It's just that you want to push yourself. So I think the constant challenge is to push yourself uh, without pushing yourself into the homeless line. I think um, the other one is what I told you is like, I'm trying to write more inclusive. Like sometimes I don't use last names or I'm trying to pick names that are um, male or female. And and make it work because then you realize a lot of times in a play our specific background makes that character unique. Well, if I can't say you're male or female, then uh, or you're Polish American or Chinese American, what are the other ways to make you unique? And so that's a challenge too because I'm really trying to write uh, for men, women, and transgender and non-binary. And that, that's a challenge, but I love it because I, I believe in inclusivity after spending most of my life on the margins. Mm-hmm, absolutely. I just like, I'm sorry, my brain is still stuck on your, that shitty teacher who said that there were, that you couldn't be Chinese and be in little Abner. Like what? I'm just, what's happening in my heart is like, how much sooner could you have started writing, right? Or how Correct. much sooner could you have gotten into this world and found this family if if that person hadn't said you don't look right right it, that it, it you know we came i always say this in my stand-up. we immigrated to this country during the vietnam war mm-hmm. and in ohio so i think that's really why it was so tough um 
my father worked for Goodyear and we always drove an American car and it was always our flag, right? And um, my chemistry teacher, AP chemistry teacher, he said, we will protect the guilty by not mentioning his name. But he said to me, I bet your family drives a Toyota. He would say that to me all the time. And we, I would be we drive a Buick. <laughs> and, and I wanted, but of course, I was shy. I mean, you're, I mean, I felt like it was a terrible time to immigrate. And so I always say, what self-respecting Asian American moved to America? Don't you the Vietnam War? <laughs> Well, I mean, there's this like image of America is like the melting pot and whatever. And like, you know, there's it's a place where dreams can come true. So if that's what you're following and if that's like the story that you believe in, like immigrating at any point is a great idea if you believe right. that, you know. Right. And my father did hear what the reality No. And then, you know, the auto wars. We and so we were just trapped in the auto wars and I was so relieved, you know, when um we, we were no longer, we went from gooks, this is my journey, gook, to jap, to chink, to bell of the ball. Because <laughs> one, one time I went to, I, I thought I hated high school, I thought I hated Ohio, I went to my reunion, and they told me, I look really wonderful, you know, I've aged gracefully, this is, oh, and so, that's what I say, jap, gook, jap, chink, bell of the ball. <laughs> well, there you go, you win. <laughs> Okay. Here's one of my favorite questions. Okay. My, my absolute favorite one of the interview series. Okay. Ready? All right. What is something that you do in your theatrical work? Yes. That if I did it in my, in my life, it would make my life better. Oh, gee, see, that's hard. I, I think, um, because you're already great. I think that, um, I think laugh. Imagine that me is just a stand in for like the universal human being that's out here listening. I don't know. See, I think it's like, what? Okay. Repeat the question. What, what, what should I recommend that you do to improve your theatrical experience? Yeah. So we're kind of like figuring out like, how can we apply the skills and talents that we have in the theater to regular everyday life? So what is something you do in your theatrical work that if we did it in our lives our real lives, right? Quote unquote, real life, um, it would make our life better. Well, I think like listening is always crucial because we're, um, but not listening to respond, just listening, like, or eavesdropping. I used, this used to be great in New York. I used to tell my students just, you know, New York is so crowded. You can't help but eavesdrop. Just listen to people. And, and sometimes when I go out, I'll go, I'll try to imagine what conversation they're having. Like, is this their first date? What do I think? You know? And so I do that. I'd go out of my comfort zone. And by that, like sometimes, um, I'll try to write a song, even though I'm not really known as a composer. And it's just kind of fun. You'll learn new things and hum and uh, try things in different voices. Like I was once on jury duty and the judge had to ask the witness to stop, um, to say yes or no. Because every question she would go, uh-huh, 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 uh-uh. And I realized she just took two <laughs> syllables and just made magic and every time she said it it meant something different but you know the stenographer is going "Uh uh uh-huh uh-huh but so that's what I mean by really just like listening I'm not trying to respond I couldn't respond she's giving testimony but I was I was enchanted with the number of ways you can say "Uh uh (laughs) uh-huh and and I started uh taking voice lessons and for example um Gloria Steinem when I met her in 2010 I told her that a lot of times I 
write plays with Asian Americans and then the theater will say we can't cast or or they'll tell me there's nobody as funny as you. There's nobody funny or there's nobody as funny as you, but younger because, you know, they want my younger self. (laughs) And so Gloria said, you got to get up on stage and do stand up. So that's what I think you ought to do, Emily. You got to do stand up. Me? Yeah. (laughs) Oh, no. I don't know if the world wants that. (laughs) You would be great. You would be great. So I think that would improve the theatrical experience. You get to see that fourth wall bound and the immediate reaction. It is transformative. I mean, you know, the first time someone said, and he was a guy, I almost peed in my pants. I was like, oh, my God, that's the best thing anyone said to me. <laughs> so basically, like, just do something that really stretches you and that really yes. like, forces you to do. Maybe that you're scared of. Comfortable. Yeah. Yes, that um, you're scared of. Yeah, it can't be uncomfortable. Like, I don't want to go to that mall and drop $200 on a shirt. No, I'm talking like, get up on stage, yeah. do stand up, or go say hi to someone. Um, random act of kindness. Mm-hmm. For me, it would be karaoke. I'm, I'm kind okay, of- Okay, uh, see? I do not enjoy singing in public very much. I do so not either. Like, really push me into like, uh, territory. <laughs> yes. So do one, do something that scares you. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's good. That's good. All right. Should theater be universally accessible to every human on the earth? I do. Sometimes when I look at the prices, like example for Hamilton, I thought- Oh my God, my neighbor, you know, they said to me, you must make a lot of money based on these Hamilton prices. I'm like, uh, uh, no, <laughs> my name is not Lin-Manuel Miranda, but I could see how you could make that mistake. Mm-hmm. Yes, I do. Because I think when theater becomes elite, as in too expensive, people think it's, all, it's for the 1% or the 2%. And one thing that I learned about theater is like, sometimes you go thinking it's about them and then you leave realizing that show is about you because you're thinking, Oh, I'm, I have nothing in common with this family from Mississippi. And then you're like, Oh, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, actually. (laughs) So I do think it should be universal. That's why I try so hard to write for all ages and all sexes, even though I'm learning what the gender scale is because, and um, I'm trying very hard because I think, because it teaches empathy and compassion than the people going like one time, number one son is about a gay guy on wall street and how he has to be in the closet for this testosterone filled world. And I remember a neighbor, cause I grew up in Ohio, a swing state and she came to the show and I was really worried because, um, but she told me afterwards that she now thought gay people should have rights, oh you know? God. So yeah, I was like, that's amazing. <laughs> I'm like, and I'm like, Oh my God, if I can change one person's mind, at per show, that's pretty good, right? That's and, um, really good. <laughs> right? So I do think it should be accessible, both financially and inclusive, about as many people as possible. Not just, you know, yeah, one, all, not just one, all men, written by men, or all, you know, yeah. which is traditionally what it's been. Yeah. And I think it's great that some people are now starting to say, I will not support this theater if I don't see a woman playwright on you. Mm-hmm or a person of color, or the only person of color is the same playwright every season, you know? Yep. I have written, um, I've written my own letters to the, even just the community theaters locally here about that, where it's like, yeah. hey, I was just looking at your last couple seasons <laughs> and I noticed right. white, white male playwrights, right? Right. Um, and like diversity and inclusion is in your mission statement. So 
what are you going to do about it? Right. And it's stop- not that hard to find female playwrights, to find playwrights of color. Like if they're there and they're easily accessible, if you just like- Google You have to look, them. right. And, and the other thing is don't use people of color and diversity only for your stage reading. A lot of theaters will get grants, you know, and then just give you development hell. Oh, I got a stage reading. I got a stage reading, but that's it. You know? Mm, so yeah. yeah, that infuriates me. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's just like, it's just not that hard. Like to like, you know, as part of the thing that drives me crazy is when people say things like, um, well, there just aren't any like female writers or they're right. Just the way they tried to tell me there are no funny Asian Americans. Yeah. Like there's no one, there's no Chinese people who are going to audition for this. Right. Like what? like, it's not that go ask, just put it in your advertisements. Like, yes. And especially with social media, it's now easier than ever. Oh my God. You know? Yeah. And even like putting together this podcast, I've, I've like, as I talk to my network, I say, I'm especially looking for women of color and people with disabilities. Like that is a thing I really want to make sure that those voices are amplified. That's like, I'm looking for everybody, but I'm especially looking for these. And that's like helping me even, even like saying that I'm still getting a majority of white women, um, who are, you know, wanting to be us anyway, but it's possible. You just have to say, we're especially looking for this. Like, it's not that hard to adjust audition notices to uh, adjust what you look for in order to like, make sure that that is that's right. That your numbers yeah. are skewing. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to. No, no, no. You're we're on the same side. <laughs> it drives me crazy when people are like, "Oh, it's just hard." It's not that hard. It's not <laughs> that hard. <laughs> it just everything takes effort. Yeah, everything takes effort. Even like asking your friends what their favorite play is, they're gonna say like Arsenic and All Blaze in Oklahoma. Great. That is just as hard as going on to like the new play exchange. Exactly. And you know. Yeah. Anyway, we're on the same page here. Preaching to the choir. <laughs> okay, Lucy. <laughs> I would like you to please plant a seed in mm. the hearts, minds, or spirits, or all three of the people who are listening today. I think the plant the seed is just go out and see a show, live performance, because we all behind our computers watching YouTube and we're on Facebook and we're on our phones. And I don't think people understand that especially people who have never been in the theater, that when you go to the theater, you're seeing as a community, you're laughing at the same time. And as someone who's done stand-up, I even know that some of the jokes are different each night. So the performances are a little different. And remember when I said, like, do something out of comfort zone, even if you're in a foreign country, go, like I was in Germany, I thought, let's go see a play in German. Yeah, I'm not going to understand very much, but what the, what I will understand might really surprise me, right? And I thought, that's what I'd like to plant a seed. Go see a live performance. It could be dance, theater, spoken word. There's usually something that's not too expensive. And and see it as a group because it totally makes a difference. Like you can laugh. When I do comedy, people are just like, oh, send me a YouTube clip. You send me a YouTube clip. But the experience as a house, oh, my God, is totally different. Completely It's different. magical. Right. Yeah, there's an energy that comes even like when you're – like obviously when you're part of a, of a production <clears> – <throat> excuse me – when you're part of a production, there's the energy of the creation and the co-creation that you're doing. But in the, in the house and in the audience, there's this like shared experience. Yes. It's exactly the same as reliving a, like a memory with an old friend. You know, exactly. Like, and you will do this thing together. Exactly. It's like the way the sports fans always go to the football game. Well, go to a live performance and you will see the difference. I mean, yeah. 
Totally. It's so great. And I think that I thank you for reminding us too, because a lot of people who, even people who consider themselves to be like quote unquote theater people who are working in the industry, we forget to make time to go yes. see other people's work. Um, yes. Some people are really good at it, but a lot of us are just like, because I know like I taught theater for 11 years and I was just tired and exhausted and burnt out so often that I would forget to like make time in my life to go see shows so I could remember why I was doing this in the first place. Oh, yes. But wait, go see a show that you've read no reviews about. Don't read a review. Don't just go. Anyways, I, I love that. I, I go see things without knowing anything except for the title. <laughs> yes. Because that's what I, sometimes when you read the review, you're like, oh, I don't think I like this. You start to make judgments. Mm-hmm. So I decided what sometimes when I go to a show, I don't want to, don't, don't tell me the review. I just, mm-hmm. same thing with a book. I heard it's a great book. Don't tell me what happens. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't want to know anything. I just like, I literally sometimes make choices based on the cover. Um, just like, I'll read the cover. I'll read the first page. And it's like, I either want to keep reading this or I don't. Um, And it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks about it. It doesn't matter what it's about. I just either feel drawn into this world after page one or not, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's good tips. Good tips. I love it. So, okay. If listeners want to hire you, they want to contact you. They want to uh, check out your list of works, um, learn more about what you do. What's the best way for them to contact you or find you? I guess Chick-fil-A with two L's at gmail.com. And in my play, Junk Bonds, that won a Kennedy Center Award, I decided I call men pork chops and women Chick-fil-A's because that's the world it was set in. And I decided in honor of the Kennedy Center Award, I would make that my Gmail address, Chick-fil-A at gmail.com. And, um, and this way, I also know when it's spam. So <laughs> when people go, dear Miss Chick-fil-A, I'm like, okay, this isn't somebody I know. <laughs> <laughs> so please, if you contact me, do not write, dear Miss Chick-fil-A. <laughs> right. We know that you are Lucy Wang. <laughs> yes. Also pronounced Lucy Wong, because when we came to this country, you know, and it got anglicized, mm-hmm. it became Wang with W-A-N-G. Mm-hmm. But in Chinese, it's really Wong. And oh, I say that... I. I say this because a lot of Chinese people go, don't you know your own last name? I'm like, yes, I do, but you don't understand. So which do you prefer? You know, I actually prefer Wang because people spell it right. Mm-hmm. And I, I, um, when I used to go to studios, or now we're in this country, a country where you have to have real ID everywhere, I found it's just better to pronunciation should match my documents. Got it. But yes, if I was in China, I would say Wang. You would say Wong. That's really good to know. Thank you for clarifying that. I appreciate it. Um, well, Lucy Wang Wong, <laughs> whichever one, both. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for your time today, for sharing your energy and your expertise. Oh, thank, thank you, you. For the work that you do in the world, uh, for writing inclusively, for writing for youth, which is so, so vital as well. Um, and just for sharing all of the thoughts that you have today. I appreciate it. Thank you, Emily. I wish you a very long and prosperous day, life, career. Everything. Yes, everything. <laughs> I take it. <laughs> okay. Doesn't Lucy have just the most amazingly friendly and inviting laugh? I hope listening to that cheered you up as much as having the conversation cheered me up on that day. Thank you for listening today. If you love this podcast, please tell your friends, give us a review, leave us a rating, uh, do all of the things to help share this podcast to make sure that it gets into the earbuds of people who need it most. If you want to talk about what you've heard, you can hit us up on social media, ha ha ha, uh, on Facebook at Find Your 
Light Podcast on Instagram and Twitter at FYL Podcast. You can find me, Emily Stamets. I am the Emily Stamets on most social media platforms, or you can search me on Facebook at Emily Stamets. Um, what else can you do? You can say hello to my cat. Of course, she's always here. She's literally sitting right here within touching distance, and she loves to hear from you too. That's it for today. Until next time, stand confidently center stage and enjoy your show.